So turn then to Matthew chapter 16 as we continue our series of expositions through this book. And in this pivotal chapter, really in the gospel of Matthew, as we've already been seeing, we saw really the first revelation of the church, hearing about who is this new called assembly of the people of God. Well, we come to another weighty text, and it's a surprising one in one sense. You certainly encounter that the disciples, they're surprised as they hear more about the mission of their Christ, what He is about and what He's doing. And thinking on that matter of surprise, you just deal with, well, what were you expecting? As we walk through life, we have expectations, and when they're not met, we are then surprised, right? That's how this works. When was the last time something failed to meet your expectations? And in that sense, you were shocked or surprised. For me, it was last night trying out my new electric toothbrush. I had expectations. Sonic Care has not failed me until last night, I feel like. Whatever the new model is that Costco had on sale, it doesn't deliver like the old one. And I was disappointed. Maybe it was a, a new film or show that you were going to go to. You thought it would be really good. And then you saw it, say like Star Wars 1, 2, 3, or number 8 in particular. And you're like, are you serious? I just paid to watch this, right? I wasted how many hours seeing that? Or maybe you went to a restaurant, somebody had recommended it, or something looked really good on the menu, and then you tasted it. And you're like, yikes, I'm never going back here again. Or maybe in a little bit different situation, you were actually giving something to someone else. You were giving them a gift. You were certain that this would please them, that they would delight in it like you do. And so you're really excited to give it to them. And then you see them open it up and they are just nonplussed. Set it aside and grab the next gift. Thank you, you know, politely. And you're disappointed because they showed no interest in it, it seems. We have a lot of expectations. And dealing with failed expectations is really just a coping mechanism through life. You're going to run in through that through all of life, right? Well, as we turn to spiritual matters, let me ask you, what do you expect from God? What are you expecting from God? What do you expect from church or your faith? What do you expect for believing in Him? What do you expect in return? What do you want the response to be? I think if we're honest, many of us expect or we just hope things are going to go well for us. We want success. We, we hope we find meaning. We hope it'll be easy, comfort, security. We expect things will just kind of fall into place for us because now we trust in God. Now we're trying to follow God. I mean, God is good, isn't He? God is love, isn't He? And, and then why shouldn't my life get easier if now I'm going to follow Him? Especially if He is sovereign, like we've been talking about already this morning. Shouldn't my life get easier? Well, if you know Jesus well, or even if you don't know him very well, but you have any idea of his life, namely on earth, uh, you won't be surprised to hear that his life on earth was really hard. He suffered. And the implication is if we are Christians, followers of Christ, you can expect your life on earth is going to be really hard too. Don't let that be a surprise. The word to us this morning is that we follow a crucified Christ. We follow a king who came to suffer. We follow the king of kings who came from heaven to earth to die. And this means if we are followers of this king, if we are members of his kingdom, you can expect your life is going to be hard and filled with suffering too. Expect the Christian life to be hard, maybe surprisingly hard, harder than you ever thought. But then the hope and the glory at the end is, yes, there is a cross, but there's a crown that comes in the end. It might be surprisingly hard, but it's entirely worth it. You'll never regret following this Jesus.
Let's see that fallout from the text. Really, in that sense, the outline is pretty straightforward. We discover who our Christ is. He's the crucified Christ. In that way, a surprising kind of Christ, because he's a suffering king. And then next, we will see after that, a surprising kind of call to follow him. It's a call to suffer. We're going to see a suffering king and then a call to suffer as his followers. But let's see this first, the surprising kind of Christ. And it's a surprise in that he's a suffering king. Because think about that for a moment and do that thought experiment. If you were God, if you were the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who's being praised in heaven, that all the angels around are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, that you are the best thing that there ever could be imaginable, that you are God. You're going to come to earth. What's your reception going to be like? What would you expect? What would you want? What would you design? You have control over it, right? What would you design to happen? Well, to the surprise, certainly of the disciples, and I think to us, if we were honest, this king, this ruler of all, he came from heaven not to be praised, but to be damned, to be beaten, and to be murdered. Now, his disciples certainly didn't see this coming. And I think that's what makes sense of why he charges them in verse 20. So that was back to our previous text. Actually, we looked at it last week. But why he charges them in this curious exhortation. There in verse 20, he says, Then Jesus strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And remember the context. He had asked them, Who do you guys say that I am? And they respond to right by the revelation of God. You are the Christ or the Son of God. And you can imagine that, especially with the confirmation coming from Jesus, the disciples are getting pretty pumped right now. Are you serious? It is true. <laughs> You're the Messiah. We're going to kill all those Romans. We're going to start reigning in Jerusalem. Their salvation's here. Oh, I can't wait. This is so exciting. You're going to build your church. All right. And then Jesus just throws a wet blanket all over that. It says in verse 20, he strictly charged them, don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. And that's striking. Striking because especially once you get to the end of this gospel, he's like, you need to go into all the nations and tell everybody. But not yet. And why not? And he charges them so strongly. He strictly charged them. This wasn't a suggestion. He forbids them from telling anybody. Why not? Because, yes, they have rightly identified who the Messiah is, who the coming Savior is, who the Deliverer is. However, they understand very little about his mission, and Jesus knows this. And if they don't understand who he really is, that is, what his mission is to do, they might go and talk all about Jesus the Christ to all of the surrounding villages in Israel, But all of those that hear, they're going to totally misunderstand if the disciples already misunderstand what the Messiah is supposed to do. In other words, they've rightly identified something, but it's a whole nother level to say that I not just identify it, but I understand it. For example, it's like when you go to the mechanic and you tell them to fix your car. You can tell them, you can identify some things. It's a car. (laughs) It drives, except today when I'm here with you because the tow truck came. And then they'll ask you what the problem is. Doesn't work. That's the problem. It just doesn't operate. It makes this weird noise. You ever been that person then making the weird noise in front of the mechanic? I won't try that now. <laughs> this light came on. I can identify what a prob- the problem is here. My car doesn't turn on. I just don't understand what it does. So as I tell you that, just fix it, please. And don't rip me off, Right? I can identify a problem, but I don't understand what it is. 
And they, the disciples, they've rightly identified the Messiah. They just don't understand what he's supposed to do. And the problem is they think they do, but they really have no idea. Because as Jesus tells them what he's supposed to do, their minds are blown and not in an exciting way. Well, what is it that they did not yet understand? Why did they have to wait for clarification to see this play out? Well, Jesus tells them now as we turn to verse 21, he makes it clear. He had hinted at this before, but now he makes it so explicit. What's the mission of the Christ? He comes to suffer. Verse 21. From that time, so after he's been identified as the Christ, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, and from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. This is what he must do. This is not a prediction. This is not a possible scenario. This is not some suggested course of action. He says, this must happen. This is what's going to happen. This is my mission. This is the very reason I came out of heaven, is to be here to do this. And he lists four things in particular that define what his mission is. And the first is, he says, he must go to Jerusalem. And that should not have surprised anyone. The disciples, they expected this. Jerusalem was the capital city of historic Israel. It's where the Davidic throne once was. It's where the temple of God still stood. It's where God promised to build a nation for Israel from this place and city. I think the disciples hear this and they're like, of course you're going to Jerusalem and we're going with you. This is going to be awesome. I can't wait. But then Jesus says why he's going to go. So here's the second thing. Jesus must go, but he must go to suffer suffer many things. Think of it then if you fast forward a few months later in Jesus' own ministry. He's going to be riding and coming into Jerusalem on a donkey on what we call Palm Sunday. And the crowds are going to praise him as they're coming Messiah and King. Finally, salvation's here. Oh, Lord, save us. Here comes the King. An uncertain Jesus may have thought for a moment with so warm a reception as he rides into town, wow, maybe this is going to go better than I thought. Maybe this won't be so bad after all. But we are not dealing with an uncertain Jesus. He's not dealing with possibilities, but divine certainties and decrees. When he comes to Jerusalem, he comes to suffer, despite all the praise he might receive at one time. He's going to suffer, namely, at the hands of all of the, the leaders of his own people, the Jewish leaders, the elders, the chief priests and scribes, the Jewish establishment is settled against Jesus. They reject him. And more than this, they hate him. They want him to know pain. They want him to suffer. They want him to know anguish. They want him to know severe rejection. And again, perhaps, maybe that could all be avoided, right? Just stay out of Jerusalem. Just don't go there. Be like David. Run away into the wilderness for a while. Regroup, get an army at your side, then come in. Ah, that's not his mission. He has to go, and he has to go suffer. Why? Well, third, the third, th third thing he must do is he must go and he must die. He must be killed. He must be murdered. This tells you then that early on, Jesus knew precisely why he came from heaven. He came to die. Such that at the very beginning of his ministry, when John the Baptist proclaimed, Behold, pointing at Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus knew what that meant. 
He knew he was the lamb himself to die, literally, for the sinners that trust in him. Or like when he talked to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And he told Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his son. Jesus understood what that meant when he said give. And it wasn't merely that the son was on loan from heaven to give us an example to follow, to teach us a few things about how we should live for God. No, when he says I gave his son, it means Jesus understood I'm giving him over to die. I'm giving him over to be killed, to be crushed, to be murdered, to be forsaken, to be beaten, to be mocked, to be destroyed. This one the father loved so much, he gave him over to die. Jesus knew this. He understood that this was not, you know, an option or a possibility. This wasn't like a potential job hazard for being the Messiah. He knew this is what he came to do was to die. This is the very plan of the father. As Isaiah would prophesy in Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to crush him. The Lord delighted in this mission. And I think at this point is where just a train wreck happens between God's musts and their hopes and expectations about the Messiah. God says this must happen and here is what I want. And this collision happens such that, and the shock is so great, I don't think they can even hear anything else Jesus says. Because he goes on and he gives the final piece to his mission and it's good news. Namely, so here's the fourth thing, Jesus must go and suffer and die, but he's going to rise from the dead on the third day. The Father must raise him. He'll be dead long enough to be most evidently dead, but not a moment longer. He's going to rise from the tomb. He's going to conquer death, and he's going to conquer the sin that made it. This is the greatest eternal threat to their souls, and they don't even understand. And it must be undone by this Christ, this Jesus. And he will do it, and there's no better news than this. Death and sin will be vanquished. And yet... When Peter heard about Jesus' sufferings to come, I think he was too shocked. I don't think he even heard what Jesus said about this third day resurrection. Because as Jesus spells out what's going to happen, what his mission is going to be like, that this is the way he's going to defeat death, Satan, and sin, Peter objects. Look at verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. He doesn't just ask a question. Peter's not looking for clarification. He's rebuking Jesus, the King of Kings. You are my Christ. You are God incarnate. By the way, this is a bad idea, right? What's happened? It's as if Jesus' comment about his mission came out of some weak moment that he had of discouragement. And Peter's there to say, don't be so negative in your thinking, right? no, no, this is all going to work out. We're going to go into Rome. You're going to reign. I'm going to be right at your right hand. It's going to be great. Now, from that perspective, Peter might be excused for so arrogantly rebuking God to his face. And I think it does illustrate how disturbing this notion was to Peter that his king, God's king, would suffer and be put to death. I think the objection in his heart is, no, 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 no. You're not supposed to die. You're supposed to save us. You can't die. Now, Peter's rebuke to Jesus does not receive neither a mild clarification right back, but Jesus then turns and addresses the rest and publicly rebukes Peter in front of them all. 
Verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Ouch. But that stung a bit. Especially after he might have been flying pretty high, right? You are blessed of God, Simon of Arjona. You know that I'm the Christ. God's favored you. And now to hear, you are my arch enemy. What's happened? Furthermore, Jesus depicts Peter no longer as a rock that you build on, but you're a stone of stumbling right in the way of the will of God. You're standing against God, not with Him. You're standing with Satan against the purposes of Jesus. You're getting in the way of doing God's will. You're not something we build on. You're now something I trip over. You're a hindrance. And note why. Why did Peter so misunderstand? Why did he so misread God's plan? Verse 23, the rest. For, here's why, here's the issue. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You're no longer thinking in accord with the revelation that God has given you. You're no longer thinking in accord with the promises and word of God. You're thinking your own things. Going your own way with your own desires. You're thinking like a man, which means you're rejecting the plan of God and trying to establish your own. That's what Satan does. Again, instead of wondering about all of this, asking Jesus a polite question, what do you mean you're going to die? Is that you're talking figurative, right? I mean, I don't understand. Can you help me understand? No, he doesn't say that. It's just no way, Jesus. We ain't doing this. That's not how we're going to do this. That can't be God's plan. Well, says who? It says you. Well, what does God say? And that's the same issue we all run into. Far too often we say, oh, yes, I trust Jesus. I believe in God. I believe in his word. But then we're just getting in the way because we're not thinking in line with his word and his truth, but by man's ideas, by our own desires. And what he says here, that's not just human thinking, you know, unheavenly thinking, corrupt thinking, a little off base. He says it's satanic. It's in direct opposition to the purposes and will of God. So, for example, let's say you object or you have a lot of hesitations about, say it's a young person that you know well. Maybe it's a son or daughter. So, right in your own family. And you have a lot of hesitations. You object to them pursuing the ministry or thinking about the mission field. And it might be okay to have questions, but you got to ask, well, why do you have those questions? Why do you have those hesitations? Is it because so evidently this guy's not been called of God? Is it because he or she is obviously not gifted for whatever that ministry might be? Is it because the church leadership has yet to affirm them or assess them? Or is it because it just sounds too dangerous to you, the mission field? Or you know that's going to mean financial hardship for them. Or, or this means my grandkids won't live nearby anymore. Are those objections and those questions, God-type questions, thinking in light of the things of God, or are they really man's, or dare I say then it's Satan's type thinking? Are you just getting in the way of what God is actually doing? That's a mind not set on God's things. That's a heart that's not set on seeking His kingdom and His righteousness. That's a heart that's set on you 
and your own kingdom building. That's a heart beholden to this world and to the world's values. So as one pastor put it, we need to stay away from this satanic spirituality. That is, letting the world's ways, not God's ways, dictate your decisions about how you live your life, what you value, what you prize. So what do you want for others and why? What do you want for your kids? What do you want for your fellow church members? What do you want for your, yourself even? Are those things in line with God's purposes and His kingdom? Do those things align with His mission as the people of God, making disciples of all nations and strengthening the church? Do those things that you want so badly make any sense when God is your master and when He came to be crucified or suffered? How does that fit into your plan? Or does your plan avoid difficulty as much as possible? Well, what's to change in us to keep us from just going with the flow of comfort, this world? Well, first, you've got to realize God's ways are different than yours, right? That means you have to exercise faith. You've got to trust Him. When it doesn't make sense to you, when you don't understand, how is this supposed to work out for my good? And especially when it's hard, like what's the benefit that's going to come from this? That's where you have to trust Him. You're walking in obedience to His Word. Because understand this, though. And this is why we can trust Him. Without the suffering, without the cross, without the pain, there is no resurrection on the third day. You see? There would have been no victory over sin and death. There would have been no salvation, mercy, forgiveness for sinners if there was no cross and no road marked suffering that He walked. A good God designs a greater good to come about even through suffering. So as we follow God's plan, know this, brace for it, it's going to be really hard. But we trust Him. He can bring good through the pain, and the cross has proven it above all. Well, that's the road our master walked. So now that means if we follow Him, this means a surprising call to follow, because that means we follow a call to suffer. Here's the immediate implication for us. If our God, our Savior, our King, our leader came to suffer, if you're walking behind Him, if you're following Him, what does that mean for you? You're going to suffer too. And then you have to ask, well, why? Why bother? Is it worth it? Why still follow Him if it costs me so much? And that's what Jesus will unpack for us through the latter half of this text. He'll give us four reasons why it's worth it to take up your cross. But first, let's look at that cross. Let's look at this call to suffer, that we would follow him into suffering. Look at verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So this makes sense. What he just revealed about his own life and ministry, it's going to be marked by suffering. So if you're my people, you're going to walk after me, you're going to suffer too. It's going to be difficult. And understand, this call to suffering is not optional for the Christian life here. He opens with the call, if anyone would come after me. There's not two tracks of Christianity. There's not health, wealth, and prosperity, and then another road, suffering. You know, it's not, well, I know there's some people in Christ's army. They're going to be on the front lines. They're going to really bear the hardships. You know, good for them. Praise God for them, right? But I'm going to be, on the other hand, I'm just going to hang back a little. You know, sit at my desk job, 
so to speak, far away from the action and suffering. That's not an option here. There are no safe, non-risky desk job assignments into the heaven's army. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would enlist and sign up for this, if anyone's going to be counted as a follower of this Christ, then he says these three things must be true and define this kind of road of suffering. First, he says, you must deny yourself. This means you reject yourself. You say no to yourself. This very word deny is the one used when Peter denies Jesus that he ever knew him. Peter was asked, do you know this Jesus? Do you follow this Jesus? No, no, I swear to you, I don't know who he is. Never seen him before in my life. I reject him. I disown him. I don't know him. Only here, Jesus is telling you to do that to yourself. I reject me. I disown me. I say no to me. It's the very opposite of self-seeking, isn't it? It's not about you. Your life isn't about working hard so then you can justify some me time. That's not following Jesus. That's not how Jesus lived. He suffered, and so will his followers. It has to be this way. It's illustrated further by this next word picture that Jesus gives. He says, you must take up your cross. Deny yourself and take up your cross. And here Jesus alludes to his very way of death, crucifixion. And the condemned didn't march to their execution empty-handed. You should probably know they were forced to carry their cross or the cross beam on their shoulder to the place where then they would hang you on it and kill you. The picture then is Jesus carrying his cross, marching on the weight of his own death. And then he says, if you're going to follow me, pick up that cross and get in line and let's go to our death. You're not going to come empty-handed. Prepare to come suffer with me. That's the picture. That means you must prepare to die. And Luke adds, as he records this saying, you're going to die to yourself every day. This isn't about martyrdom particularly. This is about daily saying no to yourself, to your aspirations, no to your own safety at times, to your own security at times. Die to your own goals. Die to your own career advancement. Die to your nice little house and security. Die to you. Bear up your cross and join me, Jesus says, on this deadly road. And third, Jesus stresses that this denying yourself, dying to yourself, this is not a one-time act. This isn't a one-and-done kind of thing. But it's really the character of a life of faith. And it comes out in this last command when he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You could render that, be following me. That's the idea from the original language. It's not just to come forward once, say in baptism, or praying the sinner's prayer one time or a few times to make sure it worked. It's not the idea. It's not making a sacrifice for Jesus once or twice or cutting a big check and say, yep, I'm good. It's a life given to following him, daily getting up, daily dying, daily denying yourself, daily dying to yourself. Putting to death whatever in your heart is in the way of following Jesus, obeying King Jesus. He's your life now. There's no part-time 
or one-time followers of Jesus. He's your life or He isn't. That's His call here. He's the one you're living for or He's not. Now, that does not imply you're going to end up obeying Him perfectly. Go to 1 John. That's a great example of, to counter that erroneous thought. But it is to say that to follow Jesus, you have to be all in, all the time. No days off, you know, just for you to explore your sinful disobedience. He's your life now. He's asking everything. Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot to ask, isn't it? He demands all you have. And there's no negotiating here. You know, I'll give you Sundays. I'll give you Wednesday nights. You know, kind of let me have the rest. Nor is it, oh, I'll give you six out of seven. It's total devotion or just don't bother coming. That's when the call is, you die to yourself. Now, given that he asks so much, you have to ask, well, is it worth it? Is it really worth it to give my whole life to him? And that's not an inappropriate question. That's not an unreasonable question. Jesus actually pushes on people to ask that question. He's not just trying to get numbers to then impress the convention. He wants followers that are all in. That's what he's calling for. And so he tells them, count the cost. You've got to see if it's worth it. Now, he's going to help you see it is worth it, and that's what he does next to this text. So he gives us four reasons why it is so worth it to entrust yourself, your soul, to him such that you'll never regret it. And so here's the first reason. Why is it worth following after this call to suffer? Because Christ alone can save your soul. Verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, if you try and find your life, if you try and secure your life your own way, you're going to lose it. At least one of two ways. You're going to be lost. You're going to be doomed. Your life that you're trying so hard to grasp and then cling to, it's going to come right through your fingers in one of two ways. In the first, probably most often, you're just going to find whatever you're staking your life on, whatever you're trying to hold on to, it's just going to fail you. It's not God. It's not able to hold up your soul. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your job. Your job didn't turn out the way you wanted. Maybe you didn't get into the college you were hoping to get into or the technical school or whatever. So you're like, what do I do with my life now? I was hoping on all of this. Or maybe it's your finances. You're not where you hope to be. And all the other opportunities, they seem to be closing right now. What are you supposed to make of that? Maybe your husband's failed you. Maybe your friend has failed you. Maybe your kids have failed you. Frankly, maybe you failed you. And your whole world's come crashing down. It was never made to bear that weight. That's one way you lose your life. Another is this. Maybe you're more easygoing. And maybe for you, you just kind of roll with it. Life's fine for the most part. But one day or another, your life will be taken from you. You won't have it anymore. And you won't give it up. It'll be taken, going back to the one who gave it and made it. And apart from Christ, at that point, you'll be separated from God forever. To forever undergo the horror of the second death. That's what happens when you try and hold on to your own life your own way. You lose it. Well, where are you trying to find life for your soul? 
Is it an accomplishment and success? That's not going to last, right? Fun, enjoyment, pleasure, they're very real things, but they don't last. Nor can you save your soul through religion either, because either you're going to veer towards self-righteousness, saying, I am good enough, I can't keep all the rules, or you're going to go to despair, I can't keep all these rules, what am I supposed to do now? Here's what you're supposed to do. For whoever saves his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and trusts his soul to Christ, that's where you find it. That's why we should follow him. He can actually save your soul. Second, Christ knows the value of your soul. Following Christ is worth it because he knows the very value of your eternal soul. Nothing is more precious than that. Your soul, nothing. And Jesus gets this, and he wants to make it plain to you here in verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits, loses his soul? I mean, just try and imagine that, if you could gain the whole world. That you could have whatever you wanted. What would you ask for? A certain relationship? A job? A certain career path? I want this new ability? I mean, what if all the money you needed, wanted, all the prestige, power, popularity, it's just yours. You can have it. But here's the thing. You only have it as long as you live on this earth. You know, so often we strive for these trinkets, the fast cars, the big house, the, the flushed bank accounts, and then poof, you die and it's all gone. All of it. All you got left is your soul. And your soul is lost forever, damned, eternally doomed if it's apart from Christ. And at that point, what is all that fame worth? What's all that acceptance that you're striving for worth? All that popularity, all that security on the earth. What's it worth then? I'll tell you what it's worth. Nothing. Nothing. As Jesus ends verse 26, or what can a man give in return for his soul? There's no price you can pay for your soul your eternal soul. No amount of money that you give away can buy it out of hell. No amount of good works can shield you from the eternal justice you deserve. Your soul matters, and it matters for an eternity. And all the treasures of this world can never outweigh the significance of your eternal soul. And hear this, even if you don't recognize that this morning, Jesus does. That's why he came from heaven. He knew what was at stake for your soul. So that's why he came, he humbled himself to take on this suffering, to live a perfect life, to be mocked, beaten, to be crushed. Why? To spare your soul from the eternal wrath of God. That's why. He exchanged his life for yours. That's why he came. The greatest price was paid, God, for your soul, for all those sins that you have done. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our own sake He made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, what a sweet exchange. That our sins go to Him and we get the righteousness of God, but that only happens because He came. And why did He come? Because He knew the value of your soul. And He's calling you to wake up and you see the value of your soul. It's worth following me. Trust me, he says. Third, why is this call to suffer worth it? 
Because Christ is your judge. He will judge your whole life. Verse 27. He knows the worth of your soul in no small way because He's the one who will judge it in the end. And in that way, no matter how hard the call is to follow Christ, it's always worth it, says your judge. Verse 27. For the Son of Man is coming to is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. You know, many wonder, of course, what's it going to be like when you die? Well, Jesus tells us right here what's going to happen when life ends. You know, either you're going to die or you're going to be there when he comes back from heaven. And he tells you what's going to happen. Whether you die or whether you're here when he comes, what's going to happen? He's going to judge you. And you can tell in his description here when he comes back, it's for reals. He's not coming to mess around. He's coming with angelic armies in the clouds of heaven. To do what? Well, he says to repay each person according to what he has done. And of course, if we are to be judged only by the sheer justice of God, we are all doomed. There's no hope of, just, or no hope of rescue. Despite whatever good things you might be piling up for yourself, you've done some evils, you've done too many evils, and those evils require death sentences of God's eternal justice. In other words, what do you need when he comes? You need a way to escape the judge's justice. That's where there's hope found. So here it comes to that fundamental issue. Do you trust Christ? Have you hidden your soul in Christ? Have you entrusted your soul to the judge to save beforehand? Because understand now in the gospel, he offers mercy. He offers it now. Get right with me now. Be reconciled now because I'm coming to judge and then it's too late. You can delay dealing with Jesus but you cannot avoid it. He will judge you. And he says, make it right now before I come. This call to suffer is worth it finally because Christ confirms his coming glory. He's confirmed all of these things, that they are true, that they will take place, that all of these reasons are legitimate. Because understand, he's making some pretty audacious claims here. They would seem really far-fetched if you judged Jesus by only what your eyes could see. Because what would you see when you look at Jesus on earth? What are the disciples seeing? They're just seeing a man, a normal guy. If we could somehow transport back to the first century, go to Caesarea Philippi and see these group of Jewish men on a hill talking about these things, Guess what? You wouldn't know who Jesus was, at least by the way he looked. He wouldn't have a halo, that's for sure. And yet he's making outstanding claims that he's going to judge you eternally or that he can save your soul eternally. A guy, a man, well, of course, he's no mere man. But if somebody's saying things like that, like if you run into a guy at the street corner, right? Oh, yeah, I'm God, and I've come, and I'm going to save everybody or judge everybody. You're like, mm, you're crazy, right? You're just a man. Of course, this is no mere man. And he's making great claims. And he's going to bring assurances to their faith that it's all true. That's what he says with this promise. He says, I'm going to give you a sneak peek into my divine glory, that I'm not just saying things, I am the God who has come to save that's what he means when he says in verse 28, truly I say to you, 
There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, there's a whole lot of debate, and we only have a couple minutes. You can ask me after for more of it, but let me at least say this. There's a whole lot of debate about what is meant here in verse 28. What does this coming into his kingdom mean? Or the kingdom of God coming in power. It's how Mark puts it in his gospel. What is this talking about? First, you've got to ask, well, when was this supposed to happen? Or when did it happen? Really is the better question. Because we understand this cannot yet have, or this must have already taken place, right? Because he says, some of you standing here talking to the, the apostles, some of you are going to see this. You're going to see me come into my kingdom. You're going to see it happen. And of course, the apostles have been long gone now as we're in 2021. So what event is he talking about then? Some think he's talking about his resurrection. Some think he's talking about his ascension into heaven. I think those are possible. But I think it's by no accident that each of the gospels, as they record this promise in verse 28 that you read, Matthew, Mark, and Luke anyway, that some standing here will not taste death until they see the coming, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, they immediately follow with what happens here in chapter 17, which is the transfiguration. If you're not familiar, the transfiguration is when Jesus peels back his humanity and shines out literally some of his divine glory. For example, verse 2 of chapter 17, and he was transfigured, he was changed before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. He peels back his humanity that has been veiling his divinity and he just shows out his glory. Why? What's this about? Because I am the God who is going to judge you. I am the God who has come to save you. All of my words are true, and here's a confirmation of it. And let me tell you, this is exactly how Peter later talks about this event of the transfiguration. This amazing experience becomes a confirmation of the promises of God. If you want to see this, follow along with me. Turn over to the book of 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, or you can just listen closely. But listen to this. He describes the gospel he's preached and how it's been confirmed by this view he had on the mountain. He says, verse 16 of 2 Peter 1, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. We didn't fabricate this stuff. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what coming is he talking about? I think he's talking about the coming that Jesus promised in verse 28, the Son of Man in His kingdom. And namely, that was seen in the transfiguration. Because watch this. As he talks about making to you known the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus, he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Well, what majesty did they see? He goes on, verse 17. For when, we, when he received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven when we were with him on the mountain. What's he saying? We didn't make this up. We saw it with our own eyes. We saw the glory of God. And what does this do? As they see it in Jesus' face, literally. And he tells you in verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Or you could translate it, we have the prophetic word more sure. This is all confirmation that the word has always been true. 
His promises have always been right and sound. His resurrection proved it, frankly. His ascension into heaven proved it. And so did his transfiguration when he peeled back his glory. In other words, as you look at all these things, can Jesus save your soul? Can he, does he know the value of your soul? Will he really judge your life? Yes, because he's confirmed it by showing off his glory. That he truly is the only God. And we need assurances like this as we walk down this road, don't we? This road of sufferings, what is it? It's hard, by definition. Following after a crucified Christ is going to hurt. It's going to mean suffering and difficulty. But then where do we go? Well, where does Peter tell us to go? And you have the more sure prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. The dark place of our suffering, we shine it with the light of the truth of God until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts until you get to see that glory yourself face to face. Where do we go? We go back to his word, his proven word, to read it, memorize it, review it, listen to it, chew on it, meditate over it. We have these 66 reminders in this book, right? Said in so many different ways that God is real, that he's true, that he's keeping every one of his promises to a T. Namely, that he'll show you mercy in Christ if you trust him. He'll reward all of those who trust in him if you hold fast. He will come again and make all the wrongs in this world right. And he will bring you a reward for it if you trust him. No promise of his will fail. Bank on it. Jesus is saying, stake your life on it. Trust me. And so, brothers and sisters, this call to us then is keep believing. Keep fighting sin. Keep obeying. Keep dying to yourself. Keep waiting with hope because this Christ, he will never disappoint or drop any one of his promises. Nor will he drop you as you trust in him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these glorious promises you've given like this promise that you will build your church, this promise that you will complete the work that you have begun till the day of Jesus Christ, this promise that you will come back and rescue your people and that we will see you face to face. Lord Jesus, we confess we have not walked in faith and faithfulness, certainly not perfectly. Forgive us for setting our minds on the things of men, for getting a, forgive us for going after our own plans and desires even still. We thank you that you are the Lord, God who's merciful and gracious and slow to anger, who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And yet we rejoice too because you will by no means clear the guilty. And yet we know that our guilt in Christ was crushed for us. And for this great love that you've given us, this great assurance that we trust in, May we trust in you in obedience, even when it hurts, knowing in the end that you will make it right and we will never regret it. Strengthen us in these promises by your spirit, we pray. Amen.